Welcome to Godpod. This is a podcast from St. Paul's Theological Centre in London, based at Holy Trinity Brompton. Mike Lloyd and Jane Williams join me, Graham Tomlin, in talking about theology, life, God, and just about everything else. Well, hello, everybody, and uh, welcome to Godpod. And uh, today we have our usual team, which is Jane. Hi. And uh, Mike as well. Indeed, yes, hello. Hello, Mike. Uh, we also have a, a, an extra um, person, a very special guest today, who is Dr. David Hilborn. And David is, um, uh, well, he's, he used to be the, the head of theology at the Evangelical Alliance here in the UK. Um, but he now works as uh, the acting director and... Um, He's also the what, what director of studies. Director of studies—that's yeah. the word, yeah—of uh, the North Thames Ministerial Training Course, which is actually now very closely joined to us here at St Paul's Theological Centre as part of St Melitus College, mm-hmm. which is this new um, venture that the bishops of London and Chelmsford have set up, and uh, of which I am the the, the dean. dean. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> kind of. That's right. Exactly, yeah. But it's so, here, presumably. Yeah. <laughs> it's white right here. <laughs> do what I do. What I tell you, everybody. Anyway, it's not really going good to be here. Really good to be. Great, here. David. So thank you for coming. And uh, we have, it's a bit of a special um, occasion because since, since the last God Pod, Mike turned fifty. That's very true. Yes, it was a nasty it was your, turn. It was your birthday last week, wasn't it? It was my birthday last night. Uh, last, 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 last night? Last night. <laughs> <laughs> your memory goes a little bit as well. <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, I, you get helpful presents on your birthday. I got, from my dear sister-in-law, a book entitled Old Git Wit, uh, <laughs> with helpful little comments about old age in it, yeah. like... Time's a great healer, but it's a lousy beautician. <laughs> <laughs> and, and others like, yes. uh, mm. as you get older, you lose interest in sex, your children ignore you, uh, and, and you lose all your energy. But apart from that... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, no, th- you, those, you, are main, those are the main advantages. Yeah, you yes, would know all about that, Mike, being 50, you know. Those of us who haven't quite got to that point yet, but we'll, you know, we'll wait and see. You but do realise you're storing up trouble for yourself <laughs> quite shortly. <laughs> well, I'll tell you when I get there. <laughs> exactly. So anyway, um, we are uh, we got a, lots of different questions have come in from all corners of the globe since um, the last time we, we looked, and uh, we just picked out two or three to look at today. Um, so here we are, surrounded by our cups of tea and our biscuits. Which we've got some rather interesting biscuits today. They look like one of those things you get at Christmas. You know, you get those little little plates at Christmas, don't you? Of sort of various types of bourbon biscuits and yes. yeah mostly empty plates because they are i don't know because i got here because you got here first that's oh, exactly, i was right, yeah. thinking i yeah. mustn't say that because i'm <laughs> always going on at my that's right. so the munching sounds are their usual biscuits being eaten um but we're going to start off with a question um which came in from uh, someone called david blakemore and uh david says uh, says this hello my name is dave strangely enough because his name is david blakemore um and i was at worship central recently worship central in case you don't know is the um uh the the thing that happens for worship leaders here at holy trinity brompton in london and he said he heard a talk on the incarnation i picked um and uh, heard about uh, godpod uh, and his question is this it was about uh, where jesus says that jonah being in the fish was a picture of jesus's death and he asks, does this mean that Jesus actually was immersed in hell from Friday night until Sunday morning? Now, I'm puzzled as to whether he just suffered on the cross and then went to heaven until the Sunday morning, as he said to the thief, as he said to the thief by his side, that he would be with him in paradise that day. 
Some people say Jesus paid for the sins of the world just there on the cross, or, or did he suffer longer? Is it clear from Scripture? Can you please shed some light on this? Well, we will try. Um, but it's, a, it's an interesting little question there, which is about it's, it's kind of what happens? What do we think happened to Jesus between the time of his, his death on the cross on the first Good Friday and the time of the resurrection? So um, who wants to start on this one? Well, there's a number, number of kind of issues it raises, aren't there? I mean, there's the time problem. Um, how does time relate uh, when you when you die to the time that those left behind operate in? Um, there's that whole question. There's also the kind of body-soul divide thing. Is Jesus, are we <coughs> um, beings that have a separable soul so that the body and the, you know, the soul can live a life that has no particular link to the body? The body can decay and the soul can live on. Is it that kind of relationship or is that actually uh, a Greek platonic idea that isn't encouraged in the scriptures. Did the scriptures have a much more uh, unified idea? That, and the body and soul are just ways of talking about the different aspects of who we are, different aspects of the one uh, kind of unitary being that we are. Um, so those are some of the questions it raises, I guess. Hmm. Hmm. I think probably one of the key issues is where did Jesus descend to? Um, even a cursory reading of the Bible suggests that there's a language of descent. Uh, related to the cross and the death of Jesus. But the debate really concerns whether he descends to hell, the place of the condemned or the state of the condemned, or to death mm. to experience what all human beings experience, namely mortal death, um, and thereby identifying with, with us as truly human. Um, and that debate has you know, run through the centuries of Christian history quite vividly. And I guess in popular consciousness, many people have echoing in their minds the language of the Apostles' Creed, the traditional language in English, uh, which is that he descended to hell. Um, more modern translations talk about Jesus descending to the dead or to death. And for what it's worth, um, I think that's probably more accurate um, I think you'd struggle on a close reading of the New Testament to find any reference that explicitly talks about Jesus going to hell in that uh, kind of medieval sense of going and harrowing demons and calling out, you know, those who've been um, condemned to hell. Um, uh, we can talk about maybe particular biblical references um, but uh, Peter, in his letters, is the one who hmm. attracts most attention. Graham, I can see, is uh, already <laughs> trying to find it. <laughs> <laughs> well, as Graham looks it up, mm -hmm. um, Peter talks about Jesus preaching to the spirits in yeah, prison. That's right. And um, that is a tough text. It's not entirely clear what, what's meant by that. Mm -hmm. But I think it uh, doesn't have to mean that he goes uh, and preaches to those who have been uh, condemned to eternal punishment or annihilation or however you want to view that particular state. Uh, there's nothing in the text that suggests that particularly, I would say. Hmm. Just to, to, to read that text so we can kind of reflect on it, it says, this is in 1 Peter 3, um, hmm. it says, for Christ died for sins once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body but made alive by the Spirit. This is quite an interesting reflection on your point, Mike, about body and spirit. Through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. 
It's a little bit complicated, that one, isn't it? Mm. I suppose one of the sort of primary doctrinal things that's being said is that Jesus is our only way to forgiveness. And that is so for the whole human race, even the human race that in simply uh, linear time terms lived before Jesus. The cross of Jesus is still the way in which God effects reconciliation. So so that's a pictorial, so the, the idea of descending to the dead is a pictorial way of saying even for those who had no chance of knowing Jesus, mm. Jesus is mm. still their saviour. Mm. Mm. Um, so, you so you think that the spirits in prison, uh, it talks about in 1 Peter 3, are those who died before the coming of Christ, is that right? I, I, as, as David said, I mean, it's such a complicated text, and, and I didn't bring my Greek New Testament with me. Shame. Um, so I, so I, I feel a bit put on the spot about the exact exegesis okay. of, that, yep. of that text. But it could um, be. And, and, we, and it's, you know, we're not absolutely sure what mm. Mm. position people who were dead were thought to occupy in, in the theology of, of the first century mm. um, Jewish mm. and early Christian um, followers. So, so um, we need to go away and yep. do our homework on okay. that particular one. Yep. But, yep. but I think the, the important thing about the, the creedal statement <coughs> is that he descended the dead. He was well and truly dead. He was utterly dead. Yeah. And, and that is actually, I think, theologically very significant mm. uh, because we, we major on, and rightly, Christ um, identifying with us in our moral, in the depths of our moral depravity on the cross, um, siding with us in our in our sinning natures. Um, but it's also true that he come, sits beside us and identifies with us <coughs> on the mortuary slab mm. uh, in, in our complete deadness, lifelessness, inability to help ourselves, mm. utter dependence mm. on God for any future at all. Mm. Um, so that is, you know, without that, his identification with us would have been incomplete, it seems to me. Uh, that which is not assumed is not healed. Yes. And, and if deadness is not assumed, mm. uh, then deadness is not healed. Um, I think that raises a, a crucial question for the doctrine of the Trinity um, in terms of uh, if Jesus truly dies, what happens to the second person mm. of the Trinity? Does that second mm. person of the Trinity wholly and utterly die? Then what about the integrity of God and the Godhead? Um, these are questions that have been pondered over, obviously, um, with some mm. diversity by yeah. theologians. Um, Lutherans are fairly happy, aren't they, with the language of God dying on Good Friday, um, although we'd have to unpack that quite significantly. Mm. Before perhaps we get on to that, though, there is one aspect of this traditional image of Jesus um, harrowing hell or preaching to spirits who are assumed to be in hell, which is worth dealing with. I think um, if Jesus goes to hell and proclaims the gospel to those in hell, if we run with that for a moment, what's the purpose of it? Now, one might yeah. say that the truth is the truth, the gospel is the gospel, even in hell. And it's a declaration, even in the depths of that place, that um, he is the Lord. Um, but it doesn't, on the traditional understanding of hell, achieve anything. Those people aren't going to be transformed by the preaching of the gospel in hell. There are theologians who have talked about um, this incident uh, allowing uh, some sort of progress out of hell and into heaven for those condemned. But the traditional understanding is they're condemned eternally. So what's going on? What's the purpose of it? Just a kind of um, rather, uh, I don't know, um, uh, fruitless demonstration of the truth to those who've already rejected it. Just coming up no, no, no. with a no, 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 Yeah, if you want to put it like that. Yeah. Um, so that, I think, is we a, get ten, an interesting on this ethical oh. 
problem with the traditional harrowing of hell as well. I perhaps tell a funny story about oh. this, though, in terms of the biblical basis of it. I went to Prague a few years ago to a conference, uh, actually, of uh, charismatic theologians from around the world, all around the world. And there were quite a number of Eastern Orthodox theologians at this conference. And, um, you know, they had a very lively theology of the Holy Spirit. That shouldn't be a surprise to anybody who knows about Eastern Orthodox, Orthodox tradition, but it may be a surprise to some who don't. Um, and this extremely erudite young Russian Orthodox theologian gave a very long paper about, you know, um, an hour and a quarter on the doctrine of the descent of Christ to hell. And it was very compelling doctrinally. It argued its case theologically with great sort of uh, coherence. And um, David Pawson, who some listeners will at least have heard of, Baptist theologian, um, at the end of it took a very deep breath and asked the first question. He said, um, I'm extremely impressed by your learning and your knowledge of the tradition, but can you please point to a single text in Scripture which explicitly affirms this doctrine mm. and to the eastern orthodox theologian that perhaps wasn't the main question <laughs> issue yeah. Yeah. Mm. because they they haven't got quite the same biblicist starting point for their theology uh, for him it was to do with christ being fully human mm. the incarnation and following that through to the mm. utter mm. deadness mm. of the son of god mm. but it was just a fascinating <laughs> clash of cultures that that was happening there it's fair mm. to say that this is uh, a doctrine that's been given a lot more attention in recent years, hasn't yeah. it? Um, with Balthazar, obviously, on Balthazar, the Catholic theologian, as you say, the Ethan Holstrop tradition, a chap called Alan Lewis has written yeah. on this as well. It's it's quite a lively yeah. player at the moment. Mm -hmm. uh, why, why do you think that might be? Why, why is it suddenly...? I think that um, the humanity of Jesus has come back into focus very, very thoroughly because there's been a lot of debate since the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls and a lot more archaeological evidence of life in the ancient Near East at the time of Jesus. A lot more focus on the Jesus the man, mm -hmm. Jesus the human being. And logically one would um, see the death of Jesus as one of the great sort of demonstrations of his humanity. So it's uh, partly that, I think. Mm. Partly the catastrophes of the 20th century, um, holocausts and genocides, um, raising all kinds of uh, ethical issues about mm. the death of the unjust, and um, maybe the focus on the end of Jesus' mm. life and his death, mm. uh, not on the traditional arguments about um, the, what the atonement means, mm. the doctrine of the atonement, theories of the atonement, but what actually mm. happened to this human being when he was crucified mm. and before he was raised. I think that... that mm plays into our concern with um, mm. what human life is all about and what human death really is. These existential questions, as philosophers will call them. So it reflects a lot, I think, as you say, some of the, the sort of extremes of, of human suffering in the 20th century in particular, and, and especially out of the, the Jewish experience in, um, in the Holocaust. It, it raised that particularly acute question you know where was god in auschwitz mm. and, uh, and all of that and, and i guess one of the answers that came out of that reflection particularly from theologians in germany and, and some from japan as well and interestingly enough amongst the losers of the war yeah. rather than the winners came out this sort of theology of the death of god the idea that god was somehow in, in, involved in and identified with the, <clears throat> the the suffering of of those in auschwitz so that that he was not absent in a different place but he was somehow there with 
the suffering and the dying right alongside them. And um, not, not the opposer, but the fellow sufferer. That's right. Yeah, and therefore this this idea of the of the death of God. I mean, again, it's a fascinating one. And, and just looking back into the, the kind of early fathers, that they're sort of writing about this and trying to sort of express it in some way that. You know, they, they want to say that God was involved in some way in in the death of yeah. Christ, but they don't want to say that God died because in some ways God can't die. Well, that's deeply God is life, <laughs> exactly. So therefore, the death of God stuff is quite quite difficult. And so they they have language which I think is picked up from, from Scripture, but a lot of the fathers use this language, language that, that that God tasted death. Mm. I think it's there in the Book of Hebrews, but and that I think gets this sense that God tastes death. He identifies with it to that extent, but it cannot overcome him and that yeah. seems to me the yeah. crucial thing yeah. that's there in the whole yeah. passage from good friday to easter sunday that death does its worst upon jesus the divine son of god and uh, but its worst is not enough to, to snuff him out um and then as paul says in romans 8 that that means that even death can't separate us from the love of god yeah, in christ exactly there's absolutely nothing no human yeah. experience including Death itself yeah. that that yeah. is outside, which is the ultimate God. ground for human, yeah. For, yeah. for for Christian and human hope and optimism and mm. the fact that we don't despair at the end of the day because even death cannot separate us. Mm. Yeah. I think it's also important to hang on to what Peter affirms in his sermon on the day of Pentecost in Acts two, which is there's a purpose to all of this. Um, although to the apostles, uh, the death of Christ is the ultimate tragedy. Uh, it is part of a, a divine plan and it's mm. going to follow through beyond Holy Saturday into Easter Day. Um, and it's important, while speculating on what happened on Holy Saturday, mm. to remember that there's a, there's a movement, a momentum mm. always through to mm. Mm. that momentous event on sure. the morning after. It's turned a cul-de-sac into a, into a route, into, yeah. a, into a road. Mm. Huh? Yeah, yeah. I mean, just re- related to that, moving on to another question that came in um from uh, colin 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 marks who uh writes this one um that he was he's been trying to to uh, struggle with this particular question as we all know god gave his only son to die on the cross to save us from all sin but why would a father allow his only son to die and not offer himself and uh I think this, this relates to a, you know quite a number of sort of concerns around that the doctrine of atonement, the idea that Christ died for our sins, can seem um, to portray a, a rather nice, friendly Jesus who you know he dies for us and is on our side, and this rather kind of nasty, vengeful God who punishes Jesus in our place. Um, now we can't imagine a, f- a father or a mother. Uh, it's very hard to imagine a father or a mother willingly punishing their own child um and uh, there's been all kinds of debates in the wider evangelical world as well about whether the cross is sort of cosmic child abuse and, and all of that and so uh so, yeah, so how, how do we understand that and i guess that's the question that colin is trying to trying to try to get at here so any thoughts on that one i think it's important to bear in mind that the father and son are in this together with the holy spirit of course um that even though Jesus cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me um, on the cross? Um, this is a, a collaborative project between the three persons of the mm. Trinity. Mm. And uh, even at that moment of separation, there is a kind of um, interesting uh, integrity in that Jesus gives up his spirit to the Father. And there's a, there's a pattern of circularity, of integrity, mm. even in that moment. Um, I think that... 
also vital in this whole debate is to remember that Jesus goes willingly to his death. Um, there's the struggle in Gethsemane, of course, but by the time he's there on the cross, he has accepted that this is what is necessary for humanity to be redeemed. And um, we're not, in the language of child abuse, uh, really to go down that route, I think, because um, the definition of child abuse uh, is that there's either some exploitation going on um, uh, or coercion or just straight unwillingness on behalf of the child to, mm. to suffer what the child suffers. Uh, in this case, I mean, the, the route to the cross is one in which Jesus accepts his uh, destiny um, and does so with real passion and real kind of um, love for mm. humanity mm. and for mm. his father. And I think it, it is clear if you read the Gospels that right up to the end Jesus could have run away. Well, sure. That that's yeah. a real mm. historical mm. possibility. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, that the, and, and that he chooses not to um, because the only way he could do that would be by denying everything that he'd taught about God, everything that he'd said about who he was in relationship to God, everything uh, he would have had to deny himself, basically. So mm. it is actually talking about his integrity mm. as a human person, um, as well as his, his willingness to, to take part in, in the, the necessary saving of the world. But I think part of the problem here is, is also the language of the Trinity, isn't it? Is mm. that um, we're using father-son language as simply... Um, mapping on to the way um, a human father and a human son mm. relate. And, and, the, and the Trinity isn't quite that straightforwardly separate <laughs> as a father and a son. So one of the things mm. that, that, that the fathers, when talking about the Trinity, always want to say is they are three persons but with one will. Mm. Um, and so it's really important to know that um, it isn't the father imposing something upon the son. It mm. is... A, a complete unity of will in the, the purpose in relation to the human creation. The father is as much giving himself Indeed. as he is giving his son, is giving himself in the son. Mm. Um, I think a lot of listeners will immediately hear that and think of Gethsemane, not my will, but yours be done. It mm. might be worth mm. uh, dealing with that because mm. that seems counter to the point mm. you've made, although I, I accept mm. the point you've mm. made and I agree with it, but there's, mm. there's a lot of stuff that underlies mm. that, so maybe we should... Yeah, well, it is an interesting one because that's right. The fathers are, you know, the early fathers of the church, were very insistent on this thing. You know, there's there's, there's one. You know, they are united in will. They both, mm. they all desire the same thing. Mm. And uh, and I suppose in that in that moment in Gethsemane, I I kind of imagine. I mean, it's, it's back to this point that Jesus could have run away. You know, Jesus' humanity was real. It wasn't a fake humanity that that was programmed to do the will of God. It was a genuine possibility that he could have exercised his own will in opposed in opposition to the will of of God and gone a different direction. And I suppose that moment in Gethsemane is him saying, no, this is who I am. I am the son of God. I am, I am if you like, one with God in terms of, of will. And therefore, I'm not going to exercise the possibility which Adam, who Adam exercised, of, 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 of wanting to go his own way. And it's sort of saying, well, there was a possibility of that in Gethsemane. Mm -hmm. Jesus could have turned around, run up the hill of the Mount of Olives across the way and, and, and run away from the whole thing. So, uh, it's, yeah, sorry. Sorry, so a lot of commentators see a parallel between the struggle in Gethsemane and the temptations in the wilderness at the yeah. beginning of Jesus' yeah. mission. Yeah. Um, and Genesis 3. Yes, exactly. Um, Adam in the garden, you know, is he going to go for God's will or, or his own will? Yeah. But I think, I mean, I think what you said, Graham, is so important that that Jesus's humanity is like our humanity. 
the temptation is is mm. is there mm. for him as it mm. is for us not to do the will of God, um, and and Hebrew says he learned obedience. It wasn't wasn't didn't yeah. wasn't just given sure. to him, mm. and that's part of what is so extraordinarily moving about the incarnation is it's a real identification yeah. with our real humanity. Yeah, and part of that is having a will. Mm. <coughs> the, the, certainly, the fathers believe that God has one will between the three persons, mm. but they mm. also believe that they're both most of them anyway. After a bit of a squabble. Um, that the mm. humanity of Jesus and the divinity of Jesus had a will each. Mm. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> now, how right, that exactly. all plays yeah, out I was going to say, is which is a very important the issue. The two natures of Christ yes. really yeah. are very crucial in yeah. this. Yeah. Another yeah. debate in the early church, yeah. um, and also to that previous question, actually, about what happens on Holy Saturday, because whilst it might be mm. reasonable and, and cogent to say that Jesus dies and absolutely and really dies in respect of his human nature to say that he does so in respect of his divine nature is well it's another issue Um, and we have to hold this unified will of god uh, in tension with this uh, orthodoxy that jesus has two natures albeit is one person of the trinity yeah i think it's it's i mean i was thinking about the cross, the, you know, the the temptation, I think, of a lot of theology is to sort of separate the Father and the Son, as if, as Jane says, they are two separate people, mm. like a human father and a human son. But it's not like that. And, and, it's, and it's Paul's language, you know, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Yes, it's not that God and Christ are two separate people, mm. <coughs> but it's God in Christ reconciling the world to himself. This is a this is an event in a sense within the heart of God, mm. and, and I've, I sometimes. Think of it. I mean, I, I, I'm not quite sure whether this is a scriptural idea or not, but I'll try it out anyway. Um, it never stops you. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's the idea that, sort of, in a Trinitarian terms, what's happening on the cross is that you know the relationship between the Father and Son is being stretched almost to breaking point. Yeah. Um, which is where the the cry of dereliction, you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, comes from. And yet, what holds this these two persons of the Trinity together? And I, I think the answer has to be. The Holy Spirit. I mean, and, you know that, that you know Augustine talked about the Spirit as the bond of love between the Father and the Son, and, and ultimately mm. that cannot be broken. It's stretched yeah. to breaking point on the cross, but ultimately it can't be broken. And because I think if you you know if, if the Trinity is fractured, then we're in deep trouble. Well, that's why um, Jürgen Moltmann makes so much of the giving exactly. up of the Spirit to the Father. I yeah. mentioned earlier that's right. uh, in his theology of the cross. Um, you know, we could talk about that forever, but I think that it's a very suggestive idea yeah. at the very point of apparent fracture there is this bond mm. still mm. that is is given that is offered by jesus that's right or affirmed yeah. by jesus even as he dies and this idea of the holy spirit being present within the event of the cross and actually this is the whole of god is involved in the in the cross father yeah. son and holy spirit is a crucial part of it i, I think mean, an, an image i sometimes use in like all images it's uh, deeply flawed but uh, which i find helpful in some respects is uh, it's like if you've got you know a husband, husband and wife living in the same house and have, have a row. There's a real breakage of relationship there, um, but it's not a rupture. They're still married. They still love each other, uh, but there's a kind of hiatus within the relationship. Mm. Um, and I think that that's a picture for what what goes on on the cross. In the the cry of dereliction suggests there's a real hiatus because of sin. Uh, Jesus bearing our sin and therefore there is a real, but it's not a breaking, it's not a breaking of the relationship, it's not a rupture of the the Trinity. Isn't the 
problem with that that many people have, that analogy, uh, that there's an interpersonal antipathy that is assumed there. And what a lot of folks struggle with, and I think the questioner struggles with uh, on this email, Mm. is Mm. the concept that the father might be angry or disgusted with the son uh, in a kind of personal sense. Um, And this is, again, a profound debate. Um, But I would want to say that... um, Insofar as the father is disgusted with what's going on on Calvary, it's a disgust at the endemic, um, systemic nature of sin that Jesus mm-hmm. bears, not yes. with his own beloved mm-hmm. son. Mm-hmm. But then that's true of God's direct anger with us for our wrongdoings yeah. as well. It's, yeah. it's, but then rather well, maybe actually, it's slightly different because I think that <coughs> there is personal animosity of God towards sinners. I don't think we can get away with simply saying that God is only angry at some kind of in personal inanimate sense of sin as a, as a concept I think you only have to read the, the first 50 Psalms to realise that God is actually quite angry with particular people but um, and we well, have to take responsibility not, not for us. denial sins. of his love no, for them you can no, say no, both no, things absolutely not. and no, it's important no. to remember that that wrath is a form of love, just yes, as exactly. know, love in, in, the, in the presence of injustice takes I mean, the form of wrath. Yeah, Clark Pinnock and uh, Robert Bro call it um, rejecting love. God's rejecting love. And there are times, I guess, when you have to reject some aspects of, say, your own child's behaviour and uh, mm. out of love punish them or, you know. But that doesn't apply between father and son, does no, it? No, that's the thing I'm mm. saying, that mm. there is a distinction there because the mm. notion that the father would be would have personal animosity to mm. The one that he has loved, you know, hmm. from the foundation of the world, the one that he's at his side, yeah. you know, in his bosom, as it were, is 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 a bridge too far, I think. I think I think the other thing about the question, I think, that sometimes confuses people is the idea that it sounds sometimes, as we talk about the cross, as if the father is somehow immune from suffering, and he's, or at least, is not involved in the suffering, and he's making the son mm. suffer. So oh, the yes. son's the one who suffers, yeah. and, and the father is not touched by it yeah. in any kind of way. And it's one of these areas where I think. I think it's, again, Jürgen Moltmann, the theologian you mentioned earlier on, he talks about how the father suffers the loss of the yeah, son. The loss, yeah. Um, it's all getting terribly <laughs> picturesque kind of language, isn't it? I mean, I think uh, this ascribing emotions mm. to God is always something you need to do a bit carefully. Mm. I mean, I think I'd rather just stick with Paul and say that, that, that because of what God does in, in Jesus, we know that God is available to us. Mm in every possible set of circumstances yeah. um, without necessarily feeling that God has to be there saying, oh, yes, I know, I felt just the same. <laughs> <laughs> and I think the other thing important thing to yeah. remember is that um, it's not God who does it to the Son. It's not the no. Father who does it to the Son. Mm. It, it's, it's, it's us. It's human beings yes. who, who yes. do it to the Son. Mm. Um, mm. And, and you know, God is not the perpetrator of these things. The inflictor of the suffering. Well, it's a lot of other questions around that one, like <coughs> does God suffer, which is one mm. we've had our little disagreements on over the <laughs> <Yeah>. years. <laughs> we'll do that another time. Um, and um, yeah, I think the I'm, listeners need to know about your glasses, Graham. Are my glasses? Yes, Graham now How looks like do? David Tennant. I thought people might like to know. <laughs> no, no, yeah, this is what I'm is so meant by geek chic. Yeah, yeah. Is, I'm is sold David by Tennant glasses? Yeah. It's an interesting thing. He looks like David Tennant because quite a few, quite often when you mention. Dr. Graham Taylor's to Tomlin to people. People say, Dr. Who? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, man. Yeah, that's right. Yes, I was told by my optician it was a geek chic. I always knew I was a geek, but 
not but that, sure it's about a the term that's bit. coined yeah. i think around david Tennant. Yeah. yeah that's right i thought it's coined around me but um, you're very up on your popular culture maybe not. Jane, aren't you? i'm very up on doctor who yeah, for reasons yeah, <laughs> that i will not go into now <laughs> we asked whether it's a shared viewing experience is it that sort of model that people say doctor who revived the yes whole family? absolutely yes yeah. for very different reasons so some of the family turn away when Doctor Who kisses people, and some of us don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, before we get too far into this, it was a significant moment in our family because we all did, all four of us, sit down and uh, mm. or watch it, and that's really quite rare. From yeah. behind the sofa? Yeah. Mm. Um, I think probably my kids were just a little bit old for that, but I yeah. remember I certainly hid behind mm. the sofa, mm-hmm. and I was much more scared by the Cybermen than the Daleks. I don't know if that's a... Anybody uh, else chimes in with that, but uh, the Simon there are probably different gosh, personality types, aren't there? Mm. Which yeah, d- determined by which Doctor Who and yeah. Daleks are most frightening. scary. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you're a Dalek man. Uh, Dalek well, yeah, <laughs> Let's not go there. Um, right, one last question before we um, wrap up, which is um, uh, again a very a good one from uh, someone called David Priest, who um, says uh, about this i've often found when i've been when i'm worshiping god or leading worship as i sometimes do that i have the distinct feeling during and afterwards that this is what i was created to do and i've been wondering to what extent is this idea of being created to worship god a, a global thing as in all christians all people or perhaps all of creation is created to worship god and to what or, or to what extent does god give a specific calling to some people or even some parts of creation as worshipers in the same way as he gives a specific calling to some people as missionaries or intercessors Interesting question there. Is this calling to worship God with the whole of our being, is it a specific calling for some people or is it for everyone? Okay. Both. <laughs> Next hmm. question. Go on. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think it is basic to our human nature and in fact the, the nature of the whole of creation to worship its creator. Hmm. But I think because a lot of us have forgotten how to do it, um, we need people who are who remember how and are particularly gifted at it to encourage hmm. and, hmm. and uh, re-energise our worship. Thank you, Jane. <laughs> Anybody <laughs> else? <Anyone> else? <laughs> well, of course, in the Old Testament, there were people who were specifically called apart to worship mm-hmm. um, and mm-hmm. to lead worship, and the Levites, mm-hmm. in the obvious case in point. Um, so, certainly in that context, it was it was very much a particular calling, as well as mm-hmm. they they were there then to enable mm-hmm. the whole people. And through them, the whole of the cosmos mm. t- to worship God. I, I, and, the, and the call of the whole cosmos to worship God is, is mm. an important one. I think mm. we are there as representatives. Mm. Um, I, I used to be at Worcester College, Oxford, and in the chapel there, they've got a whole lot of animals mm. carved into the pews. Uh, so you've got a kind of orc, mm. dodo, and that kind of thing. Was this done uh, by orc. choir boys? It was not orc thing, as was in it? the Tolkien's. <laughs> <thing, so, laughs> I'm going to say. <laughs> no, orc as in A-U-K. A-U-K, yes, and not O-R-C. Yes. No, no, not O-R-C. Okay. No, it's worth clarifying. Important to get that distinction, right? <laughs> Otherwise, before you get a whole mass of people descending on was to come and travel to see the thing. But it's not a form of pagan idolatry. It was a way of reminding us that as we worship, we are summing up the inarticulate silent praises of creation. Mm. Yeah, Before I mean, God. I think that the specific gradations of roles in the temple perhaps aren't quite as complex, or the, the assembly aren't quite as complex in the New Testament. But in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, you do see that people <coughs> are gifted with particular um, abilities which come through in worship prophets, um, those with a gift of discernment or who can teaching. speak in tongues, teaching, whatever. Um, 
So there is there's a carry through um, from Old to New Testament uh, in terms of specific vocations, but similarly, um, whether it's in one Peter two, for example, or many other passages, there's a picture of all the people of God worshiping together and being called to worship. Um, actually, and the whole idea of all creation praising as well is mm-hmm. is, 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 is as vivid um, in the New as the Old Testament. When we get to uh, the vision of St. John in, in the Apocalypse, in the book of Revelation as well, there, there's a lot going on around the throne. There's a mm-hmm. lot of worship. People are singing. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're praising in different ways. There's, there's instruments. There's incense. There's, there's, a, there's a whole load of jobs for people to do, even <laughs> in that vision, <laughs> it <laughs> appears. <laughs> and there are living creatures as well as Yeah, elders, and creatures, <laughs> exactly, yeah. Which suggests yes. the natural order. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I think that's, that's right. I think that... It is a central part of our vocation within the world. And because of uh, the gift of language that we have as a species, that we are called to put into words the, as Mike calls the inarticulate praise of creation. In other words, you know, trees praise God by being good trees and dogs praise God by being good dogs and cows praise God by giving milk and mooing and things like that. Um, <laughs> but it's not articulate praise. It, it, it doesn't come to expression, doesn't come to words. Now, we, God has given us this gift of language, and that's what seems to me our role is within creation. It's not just to do it on our own, but it's to sort of summon up all this, the rest of creation, and to put it into words and address it back to God. So that is a sort of central human calling, which in some ways I, I think goes towards the side of saying, well, yes, this is something global, as, as, as David calls it, um, um, something that's across the whole of the world but but in the same way as you know if you've got the whole of creation and out of the whole of creation humanity has this special calling to make it articulate i wonder whether you could also say that out of the whole of humanity there are particular people who have that specific calling to enable others to worship in a particular way which is where your levites or Oh, your Worship Pete. leaders come from. <laughs> Pete <Yeah>. That's right. <laughs> but, sorry, David, I keep interrupting. No, no, I also think that it's a, a human virtue that we're losing, which is not, not to worship each other, but actually to praise and thank. Mm. Mm. And mm. I think the more communities lose the ability to be grateful and, 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 and to give praise, the less human they become. Yeah. And mm. I think that's an interesting sort of reflection yeah, of, sure. of, yes, yes, of, of our creative nature. It's quite interesting when you do a community where no one ever thanks anybody yeah. else and no one ever praises anyone else. It's a pretty miserable yeah. place to be. Yeah. Yeah. And you don't enjoy things and fully until you praise until, them. Exactly. This is Lewis's great exactly. point, isn't it? That, yeah. that he thought that, you know, why would God want us to praise him? What kind of insecure hmm. <laughs> despot hmm. um, wants that? But then he realised that actually in every other area of life, people are always hmm. encouraging, hmm. you know, in praising things, inviting other people to praise them. And wasn't that wonderful? Isn't that sunset beautiful? Hmm. Uh, and that is in fact part of the process of enjoying it. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, I, I just want to pick up that point that you made about language. It's really important. And I taught linguistics before I studied theology oh. and yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, did my phd on religious language so i'm still very interested in all of this because there's a comment you make in your book provocative church to give it a plug um you've read your book that st francis quote that everybody mm. comes out with these days which is you know preach the gospel and if necessary use words well mm. for a start i think i'm pretty convinced in the context that's not really quite what st francis was saying yeah. You have to look mm. at the background. I'm not mm. going to go into all of that now, but it's not as simple as that in, mm. the, in the original discourse of St. Francis. But um, it does strike me that um, the articulating of who God is mm. 
the um, kind of connected up logical uh, approach to theology, worship, Christian discipleship, which language provides, is deeply significant mm. and mm. shouldn't be glossed over. Yeah. Um, and, uh, As if words is something kind of yeah, lesser somehow. That's right. Um, words are important. Whereas actually word is one of the primary yeah, descriptions of Jesus. Exactly. <laughs> now, right. I would want to go on and say that word and action are fused together in an yeah. um, mm. extraordinary way in the theology mm. of the Old and New Testaments. Um, and you know, there's a whole understanding of language today which sees language as performative which is you know that language does stuff it's not just uh, mm. when it's used by human beings it it, it changes things mm. but um nonetheless you know I'm, I'm grateful i have to say this for that passage in provocative church so i think it's a good mm. corrective to a too easy emphasis on um the inarticulate mm. Um, mm. Rather than the article. I love, I love Herbert's comment, humanity being the secretary of thy prose. Yes. Mm. The one who writes it and gives it expression, yeah. uh, verbal expression. Yeah. Good. Well, thank you. I think we've come to the end of our time. And um, just a, a little plug f- on this issue of worship. Next time, our next um, guest on God Pod is actually Tim Hughes, who's a worship leader here at HTB. And, um, you know, one of the foremost songwriters worship leaders i guess in the world today so uh, it'll be good to have him as uh, part of our discussion we'll be discussing aspects of worship with him so uh, do listen to that next time round. so in the meantime thanks again to jane and mike hello I mean, no, 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 no. goodbye <laughs> that's what happens when you get to 50 yes. <laughs> goodbye from me and hello from him <laughs> don't laugh um and a special thank you to David. Great to be here. Thank you very much. Yeah, I really enjoyed having you with us. Okay, that, and uh, thank you for listening, and we will um, be back again soon. That was GodPod, a podcast from the St. Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org.uk. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.